the Old Testament was all about him. It points to him. And I'll just give you this little, uh, oh, I don't know what you want to call that, a table. I drew that up for you after talking with my family, who we're visually challenged. And so we need things like this to help us to remember what we've covered. So for those of you who are like my family, visually challenged, I apologize to you for not giving you a table to look at or a handout or something. So here it is. I messed up on that last week, but uh, hopefully by looking at that, you'll understand the big picture of the Old Testament. You'll see uh, on the far left column there is your genres. So you got four genres. you got the five books in the Pentateuch, the historical books, the poetical books, and the prophetic books. And, of course, you, then in the second column is the various books in your Bible. What was the point at issue in that, that genre? Well, in the Pentateuch, we saw it's all about holiness. That word is used a lot, particularly in the book of Leviticus. And then you come to the historical books, and, and it's, well, it, most of it's about leadership. And we saw that even in the very names of the books, we have leaders like Joshua and others. And then you come to the poetical books, and, well, not really sure. That one's not as obvious as the others, but uh, we often call them the wisdom books, so I've put wisdom with a, with a question mark there for you. Prophetic books was all about loyalty. Particularly, God wants us to be loyal to Him, of course. We're to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and being. What was the, the function of, the, of those books? Again, it's all pointing to Christ, the only one who fulfills all of these offices at the same time. Of course, we saw in the Pentateuch, it was pointing to, uh, to Jesus Christ as our perfect priest. As we read the Pentateuch, sh- there should be this longing within you for the perfect priest. Because none of those earthly uh, human priests could, could meet um, our, our needs like Jesus can. The historical books were all pointing to the perfect king. Of course, that's Jesus. The poetical books are kind of a, uh, a subset, if you will, of the historical books. Again, reminding us of, uh, well, what does the perfect king look like? When, when he does come, what can we expect? Well, King Jesus will be like those wisdom books are telling us about. Prophetic, uh, prophetic one's kind of obvious, isn't it? They're all prophets, pointing to Jesus as the perfect prophet. So as you read those prophets, you, it ought to make you long for the perfect prophet, who of course is Jesus. The problem with all them is they were not perfect. They all died and passed away, and they uh, were sinners. And of course, Jesus is not a sinner, and Jesus doesn't die. And so we see that Jesus fulfills all these offices of priest, king, and prophet at the same time. So your Old Testament is just filled with promises. As we move on to the New Testament, we see God fulfilling His promises, particularly in His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's a very quick intro uh, and reminder of the Old Testament. So let's look at the New Testament now. And you might, well, the first question some people would ask is, why, why even have an Old Testament and a New Testament? Well, there's, there's about 400 years of silence from, from when the, the Old Testament, when God started, stopped, I should say, stopped writing Scripture in the Old Testament, there was 400 years there where there was no Scripture written. And then we come now to the, the New Testament, and, and, and this, it's a different time because Jesus is, is coming on the scene now. There's this, 
this New Testament. And, and remember, Testament just means it's a covenant. It's an agreement. God uh, is making this new covenant and agreement with, with not just Israel, but it's with, with all people now. And if you look in your Bible, many of your Bibles in Matthew chapter 1, the very heading, which of course are not inspired, by the way, many of the headings in the Bible say the gospel according to or the gospel of. Remind you again, those are not inspired, but they are often helpful. Mine says the gospel according to Matthew. The Holy Spirit used four different human authors here in this this, uh, genre we call the gospels. Uh, genre just means a literary form, okay? So this, this first literary form in your Bible, it, remember the Bible's divided up into its genres, its literary forms, and so this one has these, uh, well, there's two, two apostles and two guys who were not apostles. It's interesting how balanced these gospels are, but we see that, uh, in the first one here, the, the, um, well, let me, let me just back up before we get ahead of myself. You see, the title says the gospel. Let me make sure you understand what that means. Gospel just means good news. So this is the good news, and what is it the good news of? Well, it's not the good news of Matthew, like maybe some of your Bibles might say. But the, the Bible really answers that for us in the very first verse. Look at Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of... Who does it say in your Bible? Hopefully it says Jesus Christ. And then in this case it mentions him as as the son of David and also the son of Abraham. So it's the good news of a person, particularly the good news of Jesus Christ. And Matthew's particularly focusing on him as king, Messiah, the king Messiah. And if you if you go on looking at these, by the way, uh, uh, it, it, that just carries on into Mark. Look at Mark chapter one. Uh, again, just like last week, you need to have your fingers ready to flip through scriptures quickly. So it, this is not unique to Matthew. Mark carries this on in chapter one, verse one. He says the beginning of the gospel or good news of. Again, same words, Jesus Christ, but in this case he calls him the Son of God. Well, let's see if Luke carries on the same theme. Look at Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Luke's introduction is a little more lengthy, so we got to read four verses, okay? So Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Now, Luke's not so obvious. He doesn't mention Jesus Christ there. But he's going to talk about things he's heard. And by the way, where did he hear these things? He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So, in the Gospels, we have two apostles and two guys who are not apostles. But those guys learned it from 
the apostles. Mark was not an apostle, but he heard it from the apostle Peter. So they heard it from eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. But uh, you find that uh, Luke is uh, also writing another book in your Bible. But before we get to the book of Acts, look at John. Look what he says. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the logos, is the Greek word. We get our English word, word. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we, if you ask who that is, you have to go all the way down to verse 14 to find your answer. And it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John bears witness, not only John, the Apostle John, but John the Baptist, both those Johns bore witness that Jesus was God's Son. And so when we go on into the fifth book, sorry, in your New Testament, which was also written by Dr. Luke, you'll, you'll see that this theme carries on. Look at Luke, or Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And he's writing to this guy named Theophilus again. Look at Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, now what is he talking about? He's talking about Luke. So this is kind of like the sequel to Luke here. So in that first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in Acts 1, verse 1, it answers what Luke was talking about. What is Luke all about? It's about what Jesus began to do and teach. So he says it right there for you. So the book of Acts is then helping to clarify what Luke was saying in his book. So the good news is clearly about a person about Jesus Christ. And what are they doing with all of that content in those wonderful books? Well, we didn't get more law like we got in the Pentateuch, did we? Different content. We didn't get all these heaps of laws and sacrifices. Very different, isn't it? And so the the function then, as you can see up there on the board, of, of the Gospels is an introduction to this person. It's introducing the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not a full explanation of Christ in his work, because even John himself said, you know, it would fill up like a whole library, right, to talk about everything Jesus said and did. So it's only a little introduction for us. So it's good we have 23 other books to come that help explain more of Jesus Christ and his work. But before we move on, let me just quickly remind us of these Gospels. Matthew, who was he? He was a Jew. He was an apostle, and of course, being an apostle, then he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He's, he had, all of these Gospel writers had a different function. Uh, some of them had a similar audience, but some were different. So he's writing to the Jews, Matthew being a Jew, writing to the Jews, and he, he's just saturated his book with the Old Testament. If you want to reach the Jews, why not use your, their book, the Old Testament? And that's what he does. Other than Romans, he's using 
quoting the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer. And that's why he starts off with his genealogy, because the Jews love their family trees. Just genealogy showing the credentials of Jesus Christ that he is worthy and able to be king of Israel. He is the Messiah. And that's why we read when we in verse 1 of chapter 1 there, it showed him to be the son of David. Of course, David was king of Israel, the second king. It shows Christ's royal ancestry, but uh, it also shows his racial ancestry coming through the father of Israel, who, of course, was Abraham. And that's why it says he's also the son of Abraham. So it shows both at the same time. So he's got the racial ancestry as well as the royal ancestry. So he's writing to the Jews, but he's presenting Jesus to be the messianic king. Now, why did the king come? Well, if you look at Matthew 1, verse 21, he says it right there in the first chapter. He says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. By the way, you'll kind of see that theme throughout the Gospel writers. He's come to save his people from their sins. Well, Mark is a little different in many ways. Uh, Mark is a, is a Jew who was a, a friend of the Apostle Peter. So Mark is basically Peter's writing in a way. But he's not writing to the Jews. He's writing to the Romans. And in this case, he's presenting Jesus... In a different light, he's got a different function. The thing that the Romans would have struggled with is humility and servanthood. And so Mark is writing and showing that Jesus was a suffering servant. Now why did this servant come? Well, look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And Mark tells us, it's kind of like the theme verse of Mark. Why did Jesus come? At least in his first coming. Mark 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Similar theme to Matthew, is it not? So in Matthew we see He's come to save His people from their sins. Now He's coming not to be served, but to give His life as a ransom. So Mark's gospel is the gospel of the Lord's actions and the Lord's deeds. And that's why many have considered the kind of the key word in Mark's gospel to be the word immediately. Just start in chapter 1 and start reading. Notice how often the word immediately is used. Immediately Jesus does this. Immediately Jesus goes here. Immediately Jesus does this miracle. It just shows his, his servanthood as he's about his father's business. Then we come to Luke's Gospel, and we find a little different emphasis for several reasons. Number one, Luke is a Greek physician. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul. So again, we have, we have someone's account based on an eye, well, sorry, not an eyewitness, but although uh, Paul was taught by Jesus. But he's, Luke's writing to the Greeks, and he, interestingly enough, because he's got this function of wanting to show Jesus as the perfect man, well, that shouldn't surprise you coming from a physician or a doctor, that he would be the one who has the fullest account showing Jesus' birth. So Luke provides this full account of the the birth and this infancy of Jesus Christ. And so at Christmas time, we often read from Luke. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, And we often do that because he's got the fullest account. 
But then he just kind of speeds through Jesus' uh, early years. In fact, in one verse, in Luke 2, verse 40, it covers that first 12 years of Jesus' childhood. Obviously, that wasn't important for Luke. And then you come to Luke 2, verse 52, and it's covering years 12 through 30, up to the time when Jesus starts his earthly ministry. If you look at uh, Luke 2, verse 52, it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's it's all he says about him during those years. Now why would uh, Luke want to talk about Jesus' humanity? Because the Greeks were fascinated with humanity. That's why they, they carved so many statues. They're, they're fascinated by humanity. And so Luke, being a Greek, knew that, of course, and so he's showing that Jesus is the perfect man. Well, John, like the others, had a little different function. And that's why, again, we got four different human authors the Holy Spirit's using here to, to, to kind of come from a little different perspective. Well, John, he's also a Jew, an apostle, which, of course, makes him an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. So he begins his gospel quite differently from the others. It's very theological in nature. And that's why he just jumps in. He doesn't not like Luke. He doesn't talk about the birth. He doesn't talk about genealogies. No, he just he just gets right in there in the beginning. <laughs> that's what he does in John 1. And if you would please turn there, John 1. He just in verse 1 he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Clearly, Jesus is God. And that's the function that John is is, uh, uh, performing here, showing that Jesus is God. And we know this is Jesus, because verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John's not particularly writing to the Jews. He's writing to all Christians, wherever they might be in the known world. And if you look over at chapter 20, verse 31, John clearly spells out for us what his function in writing the book was. So look at uh, John 20, verse 31. John 20, 31, John tells us why he wrote this book. He says, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. But not only that, he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's presenting Jesus as fully God. And so then I've put this little table up here on the screen for you that you can see all of the gospel writers here now have this different portrait of Jesus. So Matthew's showing Jesus is king. Mark shows Jesus is a servant. Luke shows Jesus is man. And John shows Jesus is God. The other interesting thing to note here is that the gospel writers are quite well balanced as they're introducing this person we call Jesus Christ. And so I just put another little uh, table on the screen here for you. You see that Jesus has two natures 
And by the way, two natures in one person, and it will be for all eternity. It wasn't originally this way. Uh, as John says in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God. He was in his pre-incarnate state like God the Father. But after the incarnation, Jesus now has these two natures. But notice Mark and Luke are kind of, their focus is on the, the human nature of Jesus Christ. Matthew and John are focusing on that, uh, the, the God nature, showing Jesus' deity. So well-balanced in the approach of the Gospels there. So we move on then to next to our next genre in your New Testament is the book of Acts. Again, look at the title. Again, not inspired. So if your Bible says the same of mine, I'd be curious to know, because mine says the Acts of the Apostles. How many of you have that in your Bibles? So it looks like most of you have the Acts of the Apostles. Well, let's just, let's just dissect the title here for a second, and, and I want to say something about that from the text. First of all, the, the word Acts itself just means doings and works. So we ask the question then, is this really the doings and acts or, or works of the Apostles? Is that what the book is all about? Well, that's what my title in my Bible is saying. So some of my Bibles, I've kind of changed the titles. And that's not heresy, because remember, they're not inspired. So are really the apostles the main actors? Are they the ones that are to be on center stage in this book? We often put them in that place. But you need to remember that the apostles themselves would have even disagreed with the title that's in my Bible here. And I'm going to show you that from the Scriptures to be the case. So the, the, the apostles would have disagreed with that. For example, look at Acts 1, verse 23. Acts 1, verse 23. Now you tell me, who, who, who should the acts or the works and the doings of this particular book be about? All right, so Acts 1, 23 says this. And they, that's these apostles here, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So the apostles are going about this process here in these verses, picking another apostle, because Judas, remember, Judas went and hung himself, and he showed that he wasn't even saved in the process. So they're they're going about picking number 12 apostle. But they know who really is in charge. Who is the one who, who should be picking the apostle here? Who are they praying? It says, you, Lord. Now, did you see that? And, and then, of course, they're talking about Jesus Christ. So Christ is the one who chose the new apostle here in Acts 1. All right. Let, let's see in Acts chapter 2 if we kind of see a similar theme. Acts 2. Look at verse 32. Acts 2, verse 32, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
I'll just stop there. So who's doing the work? Should this really be the Acts of the Apostles? I, I propose to you it should be the Acts of Jesus Christ as he works through the Apostles. It's Jesus Christ doing the work, and Jesus himself said, I would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And that's exactly what he did. Look at Acts 2, verse 47. Now you tell me, who is the one who is the head of the church and who is adding to his church in this verse? Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So who's doing the work? The Lord Jesus Christ is the one adding to his church. So we could keep going, but I hope you get the point. So is it really the works and the doings and the acts of the apostles? Are they the ones who are the main actors here? No, not really. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And so these passages prove then Christ is, though he is ascended and and at the Father's right hand in heaven, he is still continuing his work. He is the one who is building his church. And so this is the first century church or at least the first 30 years, and we see Christ still working in his church. And so Acts contains the activities then of the ascended Christ. And so Acts, is, as you can see, there is the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's telling us what to do with the facts that we've read and heard about in the Gospels. And so that, that's the function. The, it's the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So like I said, it's, it's only covering that first 30 years. It's, it's a relatively short period of time, but it's, it's awesome to see what Jesus is doing. And so we've got to ask the question, how did he do? How did he do? I mean, it starts off slow. Well, maybe not so slow. After all, if Peter preaches and 3,000 people were saved uh, just, just from that one uh, message from the... But how, how did how did they do? Because Acts one verse eight, Jesus here's what Jesus says in Acts one eight. He says, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses." And notice the regions, four regions: city of Jerusalem, spreading out to the region of Judea, then farther out to Samaria, and then all the world the ends of the earth. So how did they do? In 30 years, just 30 years, how did they do? Well, if you look at the very last verse in Acts, have a look. Let's see how the book of Acts ends. It's quite an, kind of an abrupt ending when you, when you read it this way. And by the way, notice... It ends with the Apostle Paul here, and he's teaching and preaching about a person. And again, notice it's Jesus. So look at the very last verse. This is, this is well, sorry, last two verses. It's verse 30. It says that he, Paul, lived there. Now you got to look at the context to know what, what is there. Well, he's talking about Rome. And so he, he, Paul, lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him. And what's he doing? He's proclaiming a person. 
Look, he says, it, it, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May I remind you where Paul is? He's under house arrest. He's a prisoner of Rome. He's in the capital city of the Roman Empire. So the gospel has gone from small beginnings in a little far-off place called Jerusalem, and now it's come to the capital of the whole Roman Empire, right there in Rome, and even people within Caesar's household are becoming Christians. Don't you love it? All within 30 years. And may I remind you, this all happened before the time when there, there's no cars, no airplanes, and no internet, no radio, and no TV. And they did that all in 30 years. God did that. Specifically, Jesus Christ. And it's good exhortation for us. We tend to make excuses of why we can't do the same, but um, I don't think we had it any harder than they did. So we move on to the next genre in the New Testament, and we call this the epistles. So obviously, starting with Romans, going all the way to the book of Jude, these are epistles, or what you might call letters. Who are these epistles or letters written to? Well, these books are written to churches or individuals, particularly church leaders in those churches. And many of them, have, of course, have been introduced for us in the book of Acts. And why do we have these letters? Well, it's kind of, well, obvious when you think about it, because as soon as you start proclaiming a person, particularly a controversial person like Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God, but he's also a human being, having two natures and one person forever and some radical teachings and doing some radical things like dying on a cross and rising again and ascending to heaven and claiming to be one with God the Father and stuff like that, pretty radical. As soon as you start proclaiming that, people are inevitably going to have questions. And so the epistles are, are striving to answer those questions. So their function is, is, as you can see there on your screen, it's the explanation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, turn to one of my favorite books in all the Bible, Romans chapter 1. Romans does it, I think, better than any others, explaining the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this, this is going to tell us how this gospel is the power of God to salvation. Look at it, Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart from the, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there. We'll go to the, the theme verse of the book of Romans, is verse 16. Paul says this, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice what he says next. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That's pretty radical, if you understand the Jews and their way of thinking. And so, Paul is, is kind of elaborating there and introducing this concept that the epistles are the explanation of a person. It's the explanation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we have 21 books in our New Testament. So obviously most of the books are explaining the person and work of Jesus Christ. Telling us how this good news, how this gospel is the power of God to salvation. I wish we had more time to elaborate on that, but let's move on to the last genre, which is the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. So you'll see there's only four genres, and you'll see the function on the screen there. The function of Revelation is this, that's the perfect intended ending of the work of Jesus Christ. So in Revelation, we get to see this person we call Jesus Christ in a new light, very different from what we saw him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the way, we got to ask the question, uh, because again, the title in my Bible here says, The Revelation to John. Some of your, my, your Bibles might even say the Revelation of John, or the Revelation according to John, or something to that effect, right? So what is this the Revelation of? Well, they should have just quoted from Revelation 1, verse 1. Look at your Bibles, because Revelation 1, verse 1, just says the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, That's what it's about, my friends. So as you read Revelation, it's very easy to get uh, sidetracked and go down all kinds of rabbit trails and think, whoa, cool, man, look at that judgment. Man, There's all those people are going to die or, you know, the heavens are going to change and stuff's falling out of the sky. And, you know, what's this stuff about dragons and beasts and, you know, so forth, right? We, we can get so sidetracked sometimes and miss the big picture. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist or, I don't know, revelation of judgments. It, those, those things are all pointing to Jesus. So don't lose sight of him as you're reading this book. It's revealing Jesus. And it, it's revealing Jesus now and, by the way, as he will be in the future. We don't see humble, meek, little Jesus coming in a manger in Revelation. No, this is big, awesome, powerful Jesus who is just coming and destroying people. That's in, and so most of the book of Revelation is judgment. I mean, all the way from chapter 6 to 19 is just filled with uh, a series of, of uh, three series of seven, or there's seven, sorry, three series, seven judgments in each one of them, right? 
So it's just filled with that sort of stuff, and it's just revealing Jesus, Jesus' power. It's revealing what he thinks about sin. And so let me ask you this. Do we need another book about the same subject? Well, the answer to that is yes, because we haven't seen Jesus like this before. Just think, if we, think about this. If Revelation was not in your Bible, how much would we miss? You wouldn't get to see a big, awesome, powerful Jesus. Not like this, anyway. Because just, just have a look at this. We'll just read a few verses. So you get to see big, awesome, powerful Jesus. In Revelation 1, look at verse 12. Here's Jesus, by the way. He's walking amongst his churches. The, the lights, the golden candle stands are representing his churches here. Jesus is head of the church, walking amongst them. We, we see a, an amazing person here. Look what verse 12 says. Then I, that's John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, or churches, and in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, notice John's response here. Unlike so many people who want to write books. Very disturbing, a lot of books written these days. People who claim to see Jesus or something. Very irreverent for the most part. Unlike the response John has, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, people are, uh, irreverent toward God and Jesus. But look what this says. Cause John, what does he do in verse 17? He fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, or hell. So you get to see Jesus in a totally different light, in a totally different way. So that's why we need this book. So the function, then, is the perfect intended Ending of the work of Jesus Christ, or as, as I've read in some books, they call it the consummation, which just means the perfect intended ending. So what is most of the book about? Well, as I said, most of it is, it's not about heaven, like some people might think. It's actually about a seven year period of time called the tribulation. And during that seven period, seven years, uh, Christ is just throwing down judgment after judgment. And we, we saw in, in chapter 5, there was a scroll that uh, people were crying about because nobody could open the scroll. And inside that scroll represents God's wrath and all these judgments that are about to fall on the earth. And of course, Jesus comes along as a lamb and as a lion. He's both. And only Jesus could open that scroll showing Jesus' authority and showing His power and what He's about to do on the earth. And so that's in chapter 5. And you're going all all the way from chapter 6 to 19, you got all these judgments 
that the powerful, authoritative Jesus brings on the earth. Why is he doing that? He's doing it because of sin. But there is good news, because Revelation doesn't end with chapter 19. And so everything's going to end as, by the way, exactly how God wanted it to end, because we have chapters 20, 21, 22. In chapter 20, it tells us how Satan is going to finally be defeated. Satan's final end will be the lake of fire. Jesus is going to put him there. He's not going to be able to get out. And uh, he's not in charge of hell or the lake of fire, by the way, as some comics like to make him out to be. Or he's even as some movies have made him out to be. He's not in charge. He's not there putting his, port, his, his pitchfork in people and making him work. He's actually going there to suffer torment himself. That is his final end. And then in chapters 21 and 22, it tells us about a new heaven and a new earth. Interestingly enough, Jesus will destroy this present earth and the heavens, and he has to because it's currently cursed by sin. So he'll make a new heaven and a new earth. And so let's, let's look how the Bible ends for us. Revelation 22, please turn there. And so after we see this wonderful description of heaven, particularly the capital city of heaven, which is called the New Jerusalem, we, we now come to Revelation 22. And I want you to see how the Bible ends. We have Jesus, actually, if you have a red letter edition, you'll see Jesus' words. Some of Jesus' words are mentioned for us here in the text. Revelation 22, look at verse 6. <clears throat> and he said to me, that's John, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he, that's the angel, said to me, John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Again, notice Jesus repeats again in verse 12. Look at this. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, which is the last letter in the Greek alphabet, and in case you didn't understand that, he repeats the idea by saying the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of heaven, that is, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Jesus describes himself here in verse 16 as the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So, in case we've somehow missed the function of the New Testament, it is the gospel or good news of a person and work of Jesus Christ. Specifically, we saw in the Gospels here that it's introducing Jesus In Acts, we saw it's a proclamation of Jesus Christ. The letters or the epistles are explaining, helping us a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ's person and work. And then the last book in our Bibles is just giving us the perfect intended ending of the work of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus, big, awesome, powerful Jesus, is going to come again. He says, that's one of the last things he says, isn't it? Last thing he said in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And so he will, he will. And when he comes, uh, as he said, he's bringing recompense with him. Judgment is coming on the unbelievers. Ultimately, they will be cast into the lake of fire, along with Satan and Antichrist. But believers will rule and reign and will enjoy perfect fellowship with Jesus Christ. Sin will be gone, the curse of sin's gone, and of course the wages of sin is death. That will also be gone because sin's dealt with once and for all. And that is the perfect ending. And then for all of all eternity, what we call the eternal states, we will live in perfect harmony together with one another as believers, worshiping a perfect God. So I just got three quick points of application I want to make from these verses we just read together. Number one, for you, my non-Christian friend, I would like you to look at verse 17. For unbelievers, they need to look at verse 17 because it says the Spirit and the bride say this, come, and that's referring to the Holy Spirit and the bride being Christ's church, the believers, and it says, let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let that person also come. So this verse is, is giving us an invitation. The invitation's what? To come. And in this case, it's to come again to this person we've been talking about through the whole Bible. To come to Jesus and to drink. And after all, Jesus said in the Gospel according to John, and when you drink of him, you'd never thirst again. He, after all, he is the water of life. And how much does it cost? 
If you look at verse 17, it's without price. It's without price. That is for us. <laughs> you understand, we don't pay the price. There is a price. Jesus paid the price, which of course was his precious blood. But salvation is a, it's a, it's a gift, right? You don't pay for gifts. And so we, we as, as unbelievers, all we have to do is receive the gift that's already been paid for us through Jesus Christ. And so God the Father is giving us the perfect gift, the greatest gift, which is primarily His own Son. And notice it comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, for you, my Christian friend, you need to look at verse 7. Because verse 7 says we need to behold something. And whenever you see the word behold in your Bibles, it's kind of like saying, Hey, all of you out there, listen, I got something important to say to you. Right? Behold. Listen up. What, what, do, you, what do you need to listen to? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And so I ask you, my friend, are you keeping the words of this book? Because it says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Are you doing that? You say, well, ha, okay, yeah, that's nice. I'm supposed to keep it. How do I do that? How do I keep it? Um, well, you keep it by studying it. You keep it by meditating on the Scriptures and obeying what it says and sharing it with other people. Because after all, you were told to be a witness, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so if you're keeping it, then God's giving you a wonderful promise here. He, he's saying you will be blessed. Now look at verse 20. Here's another one I want to share with you. I'll just end with this thought, because this is how Jesus ends His Word. He says in verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. And then John says, Come, Lord Jesus. So, my friend, I ask you this. Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you thinking of that often? Are you living your life in light of Christ's return? Paul put it this way as he was just about to end. His life was coming to an end. And the last book he ever wrote in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, there is a crown of righteousness that will be given to all who love Christ's return. Do you love the thought of Christ's return? If you do, you'll be thinking about it a lot. And so we need to be ready for Christ's return. How do we do that? You're looking, you're watching, you're waiting. It's, it's, it's like you know, you ever had, uh, I don't know, a long-lost relative you haven't seen in a long time. You know they're going to show up at your house and, and, and they've kind of given you, you know, they've given you the day and they've kind of given you a sort of a time and so you're all, you're just waiting anxiously around for this person to show up or this family to show up. Well, that's kind of what we're doing. Jesus has said he's coming. But, but, uh, unlike maybe our long lost relative, he hasn't told us the day. He just said, I'm coming. You be ready. You be watching. And it's kind of like the little kid. He's, he's pulling the curtain aside, look, peeking his eyeballs out the window, you know. Hey, when's grandpa and grandma getting here? You know, it's like, you, you know how that goes? Maybe you've done that. Well, you've got to live your life in a way as, as if Christ is coming back now. Glorify God by worshiping Him. The Bible tells us that it's about a person. 
about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this. If that's what the Bible is about, God loves his word. He's given it to us to read, to study and meditate upon and to memorize. Well, let me ask you this. Is your life about Christ? Is your message about Christ? So your life and your message and whom, whom you think about should be about him. Is he literally your greatest treasure? Without him, you're, you're hopeless. Without him, you're nothing. And as a believer, it's the same thing, by the way, because Jesus said, without him, you can do nothing. <laughs> so, without him, you're not a Christian, so you'll end up in the lake of fire forever and ever. Without him as a believer, you're nothing. You can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit. You can do nothing without him. So, he must be our greatest treasure. He must be the, the, the focus and the center of our life. And so, as you read and study his word, don't lose sight of the big picture. Yeah, by all means, enjoy walking amongst the forest of Scripture, looking at the trees, the flora and the fauna, and the flowers and the bugs, and whatever you see in the forest there, okay? You know, God's made His creation a beautiful thing, despite the fact it's currently cursed by sin. And so as you're walking amongst the Scriptures, you know, you, you can you can enjoy looking at the, the minute little details, but at the same time, don't forget Jesus. It's like Jesus was when he was talking to one of the, the seven churches here in the book of Revelation, there there was a church there who forgot him as well. And we can be guilty of that quite easily. And Jesus commended them for several things. They they were doing all kinds of good works. They had their church had good programs and they had, they had good doctrine. But Jesus had this to say against them. He says, you have left your first love. And that is a warning to us. We hopefully love good doctrine. We love good works. But my friends, you and I are seriously in danger, just like the church of Ephesus, of leaving, abandoning Jesus Christ as we go about even attempting to serve him. So I warn you, I just warn you, because 1 Corinthians 13 says, your life is wasted, meaningless, empty, if, if you go about without love, particularly without love for Jesus Christ. It is a wasted life. So may, by God's grace, may our lives be purposeful, meaningful, filled with value as we glorify him and worship him and hopefully him alone.